Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and I'd sum up today's case, but that would be completely pointless. Small talk sucks just about as much as social distancing does, so let's dive in. October 30th, 2019, on Halloween Eve, 25-year-old Stephanie Pars and the women in her family had a girls' night where they went to see a popular medium, Cindy Cara, at the Stress Factory Comedy Club in New Brunswick, New Jersey. After the show, they all went back to Stephanie's parents' house where they hugged and kissed and said goodbye and got in their cars to go back to their respective homes. Before leaving, Stephanie told her mom that she'd text her when she got home, which is something that she always did. Every now and then she'd fall asleep, but in the middle of the night, she would text her parents apologizing and letting them know that she had gotten home safe. But that night, no text ever came. Her parents texted her the next morning to check on her, but got no response. And throughout the day, her sisters and friends did too, but ran into the same problem. The texts were going through, but Stephanie wasn't responding. Now, she was the kind of person who would text her mom on the way to work every morning just to let her know what she was doing. The family was super tight-knit, and the silence was deafening. Eventually, her family was just too worried to let it go anymore and drove over to her house to check on her. When they got there, Stephanie's car was parked in the driveway, and every light in the house was on. Every single one. Even the one leading down into the basement, where she would apparently have never gone. Stephanie obviously made it home, so where was she now? They went inside and saw no signs of forced entry, which means that whoever took her or whoever she left with had access to the house or knew her well. They found her purse, the shoes she had on the night before, her dogs, and her leftovers sitting on the top of the piano by the door. Whatever happened, happened after she got home and took off her shoes, but before she got to the refrigerator. But with everything her parents did find, they couldn't find her cell phone. The find my location feature that had always been on was turned off. Eventually, her sister found it beside the couch between some blankets on the floor, and that's when everyone knew that something was wrong. Stephanie would never go anywhere without her cell phone, but clearly it hadn't been touched in some time. On the lock screen, her mom sees a text from the mom of the eight-month-old girl that she nannies for, and it's asking if Stephanie was okay because she had never shown up for work that morning. They realized then that Stephanie had been missing since at least that morning, so they call police and report her missing. By November 2nd, police, fire, friends, family, and even local businesses are out looking for her and putting up missing person flyers, hoping that someone saw her or knows what happened. Her dad tells WCBS that he's shot, it's too much, and that he just can't handle it. He doesn't know what's going on, and his mind is racing, not knowing where his oldest daughter is. On November 4th, there's still no update, but the police do make a statement that they don't believe there's any threat to the general public, which is interesting. This means that whatever they have so far leads them to believe that this wasn't random. That night, CBS New York reports that authorities spent the day searching for Stephanie, but not in Fremont, New Jersey, where she lived. The search was on Staten Island in New York. And that sounds like a huge leap, but it's really only about a half an hour or so from where she was last seen. Authorities spent several hours that day focused on a wooded area surrounding Long Pond Park and used canines to search an area near Highland Boulevard and Page Avenue, which seems oddly specific. Police don't say what led them to search that area, but her father's pretty direct, sending a message to his daughter through ABC7 saying, Think about what daddy taught you. Do what I told you to do. And 
Hopefully she sees this and uses every bit of energy she has to fight and get home to us. Her father seems to think that someone's taken his daughter, and I don't think he's pulling this out of thin air. On November 5th, the New York Daily News gives us the information that we've been looking for this entire time. They report that sources tell them that Stephanie's on-again, off-again boyfriend works near the area that was searched on Staten Island and his cell phone allegedly pinged in those woods between 3 a.m. and 9 a.m. on October 31st. According to this source, this boyfriend was known to bring women in these woods for what she refers to as romantic liaisons. We'll call them red flags. No woman is having sex in the woods on Staten Island in October unless it's intended to last an entire 30 seconds. They're definitely not out there for six hours. Law enforcement confirms the New York Daily News source and tells Eyewitness News that a person of interest has in fact been identified in Stephanie's disappearance, and it was indeed his cell phone records that led to those searches in the park. But they don't release his name. By November 7th, Stephanie's been missing for over a week, but everyone is still holding out hope. Her family tells ABC News that they're trying to be positive, but that with each day that passes, it gets a little bit tougher. On November 8th, something really, really, really unexpected happens. Police arrest a guy named John Osbelgen, someone who Stephanie's Facebook said she dated back in August, two months before she went missing. This guy, John, worked in Staten Island, the same place they'd been searching for her. But instead of charging him with anything related to Stephanie's disappearance, he's taken in on charges for child pornography. And the prosecutor makes a point to say that his pervy arrest has absolutely nothing to do with Stephanie's investigation. During a dump of his cell phone, which is what led them to the woods where they were searching for Stephanie, they allegedly found an image of child porn or child abuse, which granted them the probable cause they needed for a warrant to search his home. People.com reports that it was there they were able to commandeer two more devices belonging to John, and according to the New York Post, while police were there, they asked the neighbors for their security footage to see when John had come and gone within the time frame of Stephanie's disappearance. So unrelated, my ass. It turns out that old Johnny Boy is no stranger to police. He'd been charged with domestic assault three different times by three different partners. NJ.com reports that in June, John was charged with a second case of domestic assault after allegedly grabbing his girlfriend's face and then dragging her by the hair. Just three months later in September, he was charged with assault again after allegedly hitting and injuring another girlfriend's hand and then backhanding her across the head. In the September report, the girlfriend said that she had recently broken up with him and was worried about him assaulting her again. Stephanie started dating him in August. The victim in September was her, and it happened just five weeks before she went missing. John's court date for the charges was scheduled for November 6th, but before it could happen, Stephanie vanished. I went back to see if John had any other criminal history that I could find and found an arrest for him all the way back in 2010 when he was a part of a major multi-month drug sting run by undercover NYPD narcotic officers. According to SI Live, John and four other dealers were charged with third-degree criminal sale and criminal possession of a controlled substance after selling undercover detectives oxycodone, suboxone, and Adderall. So he's a child predator with violent tendencies and a history of drug sales. Stephanie was tiny. She was a spitfire, but she was under five feet tall. 
John, on the other hand, is the photograph definition of a Jersey meathead. I'm talking GTL, t-shirt time, cabs are here. If he ever tried to overpower Stephanie, I hate to say it, but it doesn't look like she would have stood a chance. It isn't until all of this comes out in the media that police finally confirm that John Oswaldson is, in fact, the person of interest in the disappearance of Stephanie Pars. And Stephanie's family seems to be getting all of these updates from the media and not from the police themselves. According to his father, they learned about the search in Staten Island and John's arrest through the news. A man they say they had only met once during a family rafting trip, but knew enough about through Stephanie to know that he was bad news. There's another five full days of radio silence before there's a massive police presence back in Long Pond Park, and this time, they're on a mission. There's a mobile command center set up, fire trucks, boats, canines, ATVs, helicopters, and countless police vehicles. More than 200 law enforcement officers are a part of the search. And the focus this time seems to be an area near Adelphi Avenue and Eugene Street, which is super thick and really marshy. Her family is holding out hope that someone's going to find Stephanie. One way or another, they're going to find her. The Pars family is well known in the Freehold community for these elaborate Christmas decorations they put each year. They always attract one hell of a crowd and they use it to raise money for charities. But this year with everything going on, it's been dark. The entire community has taken notice and it's really sad. Every year they add something new to their display and this year it's a huge illuminated sign that reads Stephanie come home and it's the only light on at the house. A local says that they have everything set up and ready to shine, but Stephanie's father has been adamant that not a single bulb will glow until Stephanie's found, telling ABC7 New York that if they find her, I'll light this place up like we've never seen before. On November 15th, police announced that they're investigating a post made by John in a private Facebook group called My Couch Pulls Out But I Don't, a group I'm sure is full of winners who are all outstanding citizens and up to date on their child support. Anyways... The post was a meme of Arthur digging a hole in his backyard with the caption when she says, choke me, daddy, and you got carried away with it and now she's dead. His comment attached was, you win some, you lose some. And I mean, it's a meme, but the you lose some comment sends chills down my spine, especially with a missing girlfriend, three domestic violence charges, kitty porn, and a restraining order in his pocket. He also posts screenshot texts between a guy and a girl who knows who, where the girl's saying that she doesn't want to have sex, but if they want to come over, they can watch TV together and go to sleep. The guy in the screenshots tells her that sounds horrible and that she knows he hates that. The girl responds that she hates, that he wants to have sex every day and won't give her a break. John's caption above these screenshots was, how selfish is this girl? It sounds like we have another Jesse Kempson on our hands. On November 19th, 2019, John has a hearing to decide whether he'll be released on the child pornography charges while awaiting his hearing or whether he'll be waiting his ass in jail. His attorney testified that John didn't have those photos on his phone intentionally because apparently accidental kitty porn is a thing. The prosecution presents 10 messages sent in a matter of nine minutes to Stephanie on the night that she disappeared, some of them calling her a fucking cunt and another saying that she always has to make their relationships suck. All of which he had to have been typing at fucking lightning fury speed. Along with two searches related to child pornography and nine photos of children being sexually abused, some of the kids in these photos were as young as three years old. Oh, and that active restraining order against him from a previous girlfriend. 
Did I mention the very suspicious looking wound he had on his neck when they first found him and talked to him about Stephanie? Because that existed too. During the hearing, the defense kept objecting to the prosecution, saying that John was in court for unrelated charges when it came to Stephanie and none of what he had said or done to her mattered because that's not why they were there. Uh, yeah, it is. They wouldn't have caught John with the child pornography had it not been for the search warrants obtained in relation to Stephanie's disappearance, but what the fuck do I know? And I'll be damned if somehow all of that wasn't enough for the judge to deem John as an imminent threat to the public. He is released from custody regardless of all of his pending charges. His only restrictions, that he not use the internet or drugs, and that he check in with someone in the courts twice a month, either via telephone or in person. How anyone could release him back into the general public and think he's not a danger to all women and children everywhere is mind-blowing to me. John Osbelgen was free to roam the streets of Freehold like any other normal guy. Lock your fucking doors, people. Thankfully, the local police seem to be taking things more seriously than the courts and are seen parked by his house, keeping a close eye on him. Something else that was brought up in court but hard to fit into this was that John lost his job where he worked as a, get this, a fucking stockbroker. He was fired on October 31st, maybe because he was in the woods between 3 a.m. and 9 a.m. instead of going to fucking work. On November 20th, Stephanie's friends, family, and even volunteers driving up from as far as Maryland take the searches into their own hands. More than 150 people set out into Michael Teague Park to look for any signs of her. This park is over half an hour away from where police had been organizing their searches and is more central to where Stephanie lived and not where John's phone pings had apparently led police. They search all day and decide to search into the next day as well. But just like that, this case takes a huge left turn that I don't think anyone could have seen coming. In the wee morning hours of November 22nd, just three days after being recklessly released from jail, John is found dead. The 29-year-old hung himself in his parents' garage. He had moved back in with them after losing his job the day after it suspected he disappeared, Stephanie. Now, instead of just one, John has left behind two grieving families, Stephanie's and his. And let's make it clear that his parents are his parents, which I'm sure is a really confusing sentence. They undoubtedly loved their son and likely hoped that he hadn't killed Stephanie, but did know of his past. But regardless, they too are now victims of his. And that's really, really, really sad. Even Stephanie's dad, being the saint he is, told the New York Post, loss of life is a tragedy, so we feel for them. With all of this chaos once again brought on by John, Stephanie's father did not skip a single beat and continued to lead a group search every day, still hoping to find his daughter, telling the New York Post, daddy is trying everything he can. And he really was. He asked for more volunteers to help in the daily searches. And according to NJ.com, he hadn't even been sleeping in his bed at night. He and Stephanie's mom turned their living room into a bedroom in case Stephanie came home. And yes, that was the sound of my heartbreaking. As the searches continued into late November, Stephanie's sister makes a correction to prior reports. According to her and local chatter, John's cell phone did not ping in Staten Island for six hours on the 31st. It was turned off. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If your phone is turned off, it is because you are committing a crime or you are the victim of one. 
John's phone was turned off at 3 a.m. and turned back on six hours later, where it then pinged in Staten Island, where he would have been at or heading to work. Little did he know he was about to get fired. That's one hell of a 24 hours. The searches for Stephanie continue every day into December. I could list all the places they search, but frankly, I'd be listing damn near every place between Freehold and Staten Island. Her father and local authorities are literally leaving no stone or mound of grass they stumble upon unturned. On December 5th, the Asbury Park Press released an article where they interviewed the ex-girlfriend of John, who asked to remain nameless, who had filed charges against him in June, and the interview is mortifying. She tells them that John's go-to was strangulation. Whether they were fighting or having sex, he would always resort to strangling her, sometimes until she lost consciousness. She says that their arguments led to her being hit, choked, and he even once held a knife to her throat. The ex-girlfriend continued her interview with the Asbury Park Press by dropping a bombshell that she had actually run into him on October 31st. She said he was visibly shaken and had a scratch on his neck, like the prosecution had noted in his court appearance. When she asked him about it, he said, rough night, don't ask, but that the police would be contacting her and requested she not say anything bad about him. And they did reach out to her. All of this was before anyone knew Stephanie was missing. Now, this next bit bothers me. She tells him that John had told her how he'd been handsy with Stephanie, alluding that he abused her as well. And his ex said that made her worry about Stephanie's safety. She knew he was abusing Stephanie before she disappeared. The ex finishes her interview by telling them that John told her if he ever got sentenced to life in prison, he'd kill himself. And kill himself he did. In his mind, was he just executing the inevitable? The article wound up being the milkshake that brought all the crazies to the yard because New Jersey 101.5 picks up the article and posts it on Facebook. And one of the first people to comment is a girl named Brittany defending the ex-girlfriend when someone asked why she didn't say anything before Stephanie was disappeared. But then someone outs the poster of the responding comment. Brittany, the girl defending the ex, is the fucking ex. She takes on a totally different personality in her slew of comments and writes, I'm a bad person because I hung out with John. Well, so did Stephanie. And she knew how he was when it came to cheating and violence. I'm not perfect for engaging in cheating and rubbing it in her face a couple times, but that's all I ever did. Girl, that article made you look decent. Now we know you're the girl who continued to sleep with someone who you knew was abusing the girl he was cheating on with you and you rubbed it in her face? A friend of hers chimes in and says, that's not what you said earlier this evening. The Mammoth County prosecutors will be receiving your voice recordings. I suggest you shut up here and now before I blast them publicly. This article was posted on December 5th. Naturally, I creeped Brittany's Facebook profile and she's a habitual oversharer in the form of selfies. Coincidentally, though, there are no public posts from her between September 4th and December 4th, the day before this article came out. Come December 5th, it was back to business as usual for her as far as social media goes. But three months of silence from a girl who posted incessantly, I'm talking seven different selfies on August 24th alone, is a little odd. But with all that noise going on in the background, you should know by now that Stephanie's family continued with boots on the ground with one mission in mind, bringing their daughter home. Weeks go by and so does Christmas. There are no light shining from the home that's usually the seasonal epicenter of this town. No Christmas tree, no presents. They just hope and pray that Stephanie will find her way back to them. But January gets a little weird. 
Stephanie's parents hadn't said much about John this entire time, other than the fact that they'd only met him once. But an article is released on the 4th that has the recording of the 911 call Stephanie's mom made from her house. Stephanie's mom went to her house twice on the 31st to check on her, once at 4 p.m. and again around 8.30 p.m., and that's when they finally went inside. The bombshell, though, is that she tells the operator that even though Stephanie had pending assault charges against John, he had spent the night at her house the night before. She says that Stephanie's sister reached out to John on the 31st to see if he had seen her, and he said that he saw her on the morning of the 31st when she was getting ready for work but hadn't heard from her since. Why had they been so hush-hush about John throughout this case? I mean, they said they only met him once in one interview saying it was only for five minutes, but in this 911 call, she knew how to spell John's last name, which is no easy feat, and they knew his exact address. Her parents suspected him from the very beginning, and so did police. The Asbury Park Press reports that police interviewed him the same day she was reported missing, just hours after his ex-girlfriend claimed he told her police would be contacting her. John was either a psychic or a murderer, and I highly doubt there are two psychics in one episode. A few weeks pass and the searches continue, and I have to say this is probably the biggest search effort I've seen to date, including the missing children cases I've covered. But then it happens. On January 26th, a large event is being held at the Grand Marquis, a wedding venue in Old Bridge. There were more guests than there was parking, so people parked where they could. According to app.com, a couple teenagers who were catering the event were walking down Route 9 when they stumbled across what they thought was a mannequin just six feet over the guardrail. And as Crime Junkie always says, it's never just a mannequin. What they thought was just a store prop wound up being a severely decomposed body. It was so decomposed that it would take an autopsy to determine whether the remains were even male or female. But it only takes one day. On January 27th, police announced that the body found exactly halfway between Freehold and Staten Island is the body of missing 25-year-old Stephanie Pars. They identified her through tattoos and dental records. The prosecutor's office wastes no time in announcing that they've concluded that John was indeed responsible for her death, even though her cause of death has yet to be determined, which seemed like a big jump until the press conference later that day, where authorities revealed that John had left a suicide note for his parents before he hung himself. In that note, he allegedly admitted to killing her. NJ.com says that in the note, John wrote that he'd had enough and couldn't do life in prison, and whatever his parents heard in the news would be true except for the child porn, which, by the way, was fucking true. You don't just happen to search for it twice and save nine pictures on fucking accident, but let's continue. Even though it sounds like John is admitting to killing Stephanie, he maintained his need for control by controlling the Pars family, even in death, by choosing not to reveal where he dumped her body. John drove her body just 15 miles from her house and dumped her on the side of the road face down and left her there for anyone to find her. Authorities made a comment that it was a heavily wooded area, but it definitely was not. I'll post a photo of where she was found in her highlight. Further into this press conference, they revealed that they'd found some kind of liner from his car and some personal items that had belonged to John in Staten Island. I'm guessing that is why they did that second search in Long Pond Park. New Jersey 101.5, that radio station whose Facebook post the no longer anonymous ex-girlfriend commented all over, comes through and files for a records request and gets copies of John's suicide note to his parents. And lo and behold, there wasn't just one, there were two. 
one to his family, not just his parents, and one to his fucking ex-girlfriend. And at first I thought it might have been to Brittany, but it was for the first woman who had filed domestic violence charges against him, the one who had the restraining order. The one to the family reads, Sorry about all this craziness. I've been miserable for so long. I had enough. Thanks for everything. I can't do life in prison. Most of the stuff you will hear is true, except the child porn. I would never do that. Use the pictures with me and redacted for the funeral. That was the only time in my life where I was truly happy. I want redacted to help plan everything with you. Tell her I'm sorry and I love her. She was so good to me. We had an amazing life. I fucked it up. She only did good for me. I dug myself in a deep hole. This is the only choice. I love you guys. And signed it with a smiley face. The one to his ex reads, Dear Redacted and Bentley, heart, heart, heart. I love you so much, little lady. I miss you so much. I don't know what I was thinking when I fucked up our relationship. You were the best thing that happened to me. I tried to move on many times. I will never feel for another lady the way I feel for you. Recently, I tried to reach out to you. You got a restraining order. Why? At the moment, I felt like my entire world ended. I really needed you in a huge way. Look at the mess I created. LOL. Don't believe everything in the news. The LOL in here has me raging. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you have an amazing life. You deserve it. Not a day goes by where I don't think about you and Ben. The girl in the news with me was such a piece of shit. I'm about to light my script on fucking fire. She hurt me over and over, and I was already at my lowest. She was a horrible person. John, not even for a second, had any regret for what he did to Stephanie, and I am so big fucking mad I could scream. But let's keep going. Please help my parents with my funeral. You're the only person I have ever loved. Sorry for everything. I wish I could go back in time and correct my mistakes, but I can't. And it ends with a sad face. But fuck you, dude. I knew this guy was a pervy, woman-beating, murderous piece of shit, but it's confirmed that he's just trash. Burning garbage. I feel genuine sorrow for the plants that had to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen for this dumpster gurgler. And if his own words weren't infuriating enough, his own family decided it would be a good time for them to say that they don't think John's guilty since he didn't come out and say, I killed Stephanie. Hop on a bus and head to North Carolina. I'm sure Chris Watts' delusional family would love to be in good company. Stephanie Pars was finally laid to rest at 10 a.m. on Friday, January 31st of 2020 at the St. Rose of Lima Cemetery, hundreds of people attended to pay their respects. The Pars family plans to start the Stephanie Pars Foundation to raise awareness for domestic violence and to help women in situations of domestic abuse find a way out. Her father saying it's an epidemic and he's right. A study by the NCBI, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, basically the most reliable source for statistics, reports that family and domestic violence affects an estimated 10 million people per year. There are only 327 million people in our entire country. Let that sink in. They continue their report by saying that most victims don't seek help, that 50% of women in the emergency department, the ER, report a history of abuse, and 40% of people killed by their abuser sought help within two years of their murder. And you wonder why people don't speak up. 
According to the CDC, one in four women and one in seven men will experience physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner at some point in their life. One in three women and one in six men will experience some form of sexual violence. Stephanie Pars is one of the millions of women who saw the highest potential of a man and loved him for it, but his highest potential was not his reality and it wasn't hers either. She put her trust, love, and vulnerability into the hands of a man who stole it from her. Domestic violence isn't something that's going away and we have to do better. We have to raise our sons and daughters to know what love looks like, and we have to make sure that doesn't look like abuse. We have to be there for the men and the women in our lives who are being abused, and we need to be there without judgment. We need to be a safe place to vent, we need to be a safe place to run, and we need to protect our loved ones when they can't protect themselves. More so, we need to stand up to the people we know are abusers. Abusers have friends and they have family and all too often they turn a blind eye or just write them off as dysfunctional or mentally ill, but none of that helps their victims. Draw a line of morality and stick to it. Warn the people they date. Warn the police. Buy a fucking billboard. I don't care. But step the fuck up because someone has to. For Stephanie Pars, for Monica Moynan, for Ali Costiel, for Leanne Sluter, for Bianca Devins, for all the women and men out there who it's already too late for. For all maps and photos pertaining to this case, check out her highlight at the top of my profile at the Heather Ashley. Join me on Instagram tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me and we discuss today's case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just $2 a month, you'll never have to listen to another ad. And if you can't get enough true crime, for $5 a month, you get an extra bonus episode on the first Monday of each month, exclusive to Patreon members only. And whenever you sign up, you get access to all previous exclusive episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. out on october 31st to for it's like a full minute just fucking up these helicopters helicopters wow why can't i fucking talk why do i keep calling him job how do i pronounce this awesome a 15 second ad so many fucking s words fuck